This is Entheogen, talk about tools for generating the divine within. Today is December 9th, 2015, and we are very excited to feature a special interview. It is my great pleasure and honor to welcome you to Entheogen, Earth and Fire Airwood. Thank you for being here, and happy 20th anniversary. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. I thought I'd start off by reading a quote from uh, Michael Horowitz, you probably know, is the uh, personal archivist for Timothy Leary. Um, I was reading this really interesting um, interview with him recently, and this quote I thought was really appropriate to, you know, sort of what you guys do. Horowitz says, powerful descriptive writing about personal drug experiences mimics the effects of the drugs themselves. Reading Aleister Crowley on how hashish aided his meditation, or Mez Mesro on playing in a jazz band on marijuana, or Gordon and Valentino Wasson's otherworldly mushroom journey in a curandera's hut in Mexico, or Anais Nin describing how LSD turned her body into liquid gold can be mildly psychoactive in itself, especially so if you'd had your own prior experiences. We also collected books and studied the rituals of the peyote and mushroom cults, the history of the opium wars and laughing gas parties. We learned that drug literature is endless and drug taking was one of the earliest and most common activities of mankind. So I guess my question for you in that context is, what role did the mildly psychoactive effect that Horowitz attributes to some drug literature play in the founding of Arrowhead? Well, that's a, an interesting way to ask the question. I mean, I agree with, I agree with Michael's uh, version of that. I think, I think it's definitely true. Uh, you know, it's, it kind of relates a little bit maybe to the, the weirdness that is, that seems to be fairly common that people often report starting tripping before they've taken the drug, you know, like, especially if, if the, if you have experience with LSD or something like that, the, like the hours before taking LSD, yeah, you already feel kind of like you're high. And that's, that's a <laughs> kind of a, kind of an effect that I think that goes along with reading about other people's experiences, especially if one has experiences that are somewhat similar in you know, some, or have some hooks that, I mean, there's reading a lot of trip reports. If you get past the point where you're just annoyed that you're reading trip reports because they can be pretty dull um, is once you get into a, a really good report um, it definitely can one can both feel really weird while doing it and there's also kind of like I want to have that experience there's, there's a little bit of a you know uh, kind of sensation that, that I, oh, I've, oh I've read this DMT trip and I oh I've, I've never met the, those aliens on DMT I want to meet those aliens on DMT <laughs> and then you read the next report where the guy crashed his car and you know he winds up in the hospital and stuff it's it's, I definitely feel, I definitely feel anxious a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Mild euphoria associated with anxiety. Um. Well, so here, so here's, here's, I'm going to, I'm going to go slightly back to the original question, but um, I think that part of a distinct part of why we started Arrowhead was because a lot of people in college talked about their experiences and, and it was less written experiences and more, more verbal st storytelling about their experiences. Um, because of course there was, there was not fewer, inter fewer, fewer, fewer interwebs at the time. <laughs> um, but hearing people's descriptions of what they had experienced certainly piqued our interest and caused us to, in, in, uh, as, as is appropriate to our personalities to want to research the, the substances that they were talking about, which eventually on down the line led to Arrowhead. Hmm. So it, it, it kind of did, you know, flow from that same, I guess, uh, you know, instinct or impulse. 
Um, and by the way, it's funny, Earth, that you mentioned earlier that um, you know some people can feel things uh, before taking the substance. I'm sort of famous for that, I think. Um, I feel that way now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> this this, was, this was one of my favorite things about Joe was you know when, when we'd be uh, you know after we had started something uh, like a trip, he, you know, I would say, "Are you feeling it?" And he's like, "Man, I was feeling it yesterday." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really true. Like I, I do feel it um, like the day before sometimes, and I'll think, "Oh man, like, is there going to be an opportunity tomorrow to do, you know, do have some fun?" <laughs> Um, oh, you know, funny. yeah, it's, it's, it's really weird. And, and certainly there's an effect too, like when you're um, preparing certain things, like, um, you know, maybe like, you know, chopping up the mushrooms or something like that, you know, maybe there's like the homeopathic effect of like the, the little particles floating in the air and you kind of get the smell of it. And, and maybe that affects you in some, re- you know, really subtle way. And some people are just overly sensitive to it or whatever. Um, but yeah, even just reading about it, isn't that interesting that, that uh, it can induce the same kind of effect uh, somehow? But that's what well, good writing is, you know. We are clearly chemically mediated beings. And so it doesn't require, we, we, our, chemical, our chemistry shifts all the time and it doesn't require a, a solid dose of a psychoactive drug to, to um do that. So. I don't. I don't. I, I think I, I have this. I have kind of the same experience that you describe, uh, uh, but Joe. But the um, uh, one of the ways that I think about that kind of thing is that one can have. I mean, I meant a dream. You can have a dream. You don't need an exogenous exogenous psychoactive drug in order to have a dream experience. You don't need to have a exogenous psychoactive drug or technology in order to be able to have a vivid memory of a past of, of something you experienced in the past. And so in a lot of ways, just the memory hooks and the associations and the smells and things like that are more than enough to be able to elicit or bring up, you know, uh, previous effects. Um, so sure. I think that's, yeah, it's pretty weird. <laughs> I mean, do you think, you know, to, to that, um, well to, on the whole dream angle, you know, um, to that point, do you think that, um, it, you know, it's related to some kind of like internal mechanism around, I don't know, DMT, you know, endogenous production of DMT and release or, uh, you know, just, I mean, I guess it speaks also to like the capacity we have to have these experiences right. and how these chemicals sort of like fit into different receptors and replace, you know, a- act in place of neurotransmitters or whatever's happening. Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessary to posit any any DMT or any anything any specific chemical um, as so much as just to talk about the way that the brain is uh, the mind mind brains body systems are set up to have the capacity to do complete visualizations along with apparent smells and even body positions and locations and things like that where people who one of the things that I find has been kind of interesting over the last twenty something years um, is that. People who don't have vivid dream lives, who don't remember their dreams very often, like some people describe essentially never remembering their dreams. And, and talking to those people about what a psychedelic experience is like is, is harder, I think, because it seems more foreign to people where if you're talking to someone, you can say, well, you know how you had a dream where you believed you were somewhere you didn't realize you were in a totally fake, you know, fake universe. And, um, and the fact that there were, you know, giant green monsters that were happened to your mother and, and you were at school and you left your violin behind, you know, that, that <laughs> if you're in, if, if, if you're living, if you understand that the brain and mind and the body have the capacity to, to visualize complete, apparently consistent, although they're obviously yeah. inconsistent 3d worlds, then it's really easy to talk about the fact that, oh, sure, you know, you, you know, the, the, 
wall breathes, right? Or or the, the carpet the carpet pattern turns into something you know that looks like it's from you know some other uh, you know some other planet. I basically don't remember my dreams at all. I, I wake up and I wake up and I think there was a cat. That, no, that's about what I get. Okay, Kevin, you mentioned that to me recently. You you rarely remember your dreams, and I think you, yeah. you only started to recently. Was there some kind of? Um... Yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm starting to pursue this one because I was just listening to a great uh, radio lab the other day that was all about um, lucid dreaming and techniques for. For, for working on, uh, on well, A, remembering your dreams, and then B, being able to act lucidly within those dreams. And uh, that's definitely something I've suffered from. I think I had a lot of nightmares as a kid and somehow yeah. just turned off the memory part of it all. Yeah, so it's, for me, it's rare way. too. You know, when she was young, she had night terrors. And you know, to this day, she says she, she doesn't really remember her dreams. For me, I remember them often vividly. Uh, you know, it's usually in the morning when you kind of wake up and go back to bed that it's it's – usually pretty entertaining and it's fun kind of recounting them at times. But I agree, you know, to what you were saying, Earth, about, you know, when you have a context for the language or you have a context for the experience, you know, you can, it helps you describe, you know, what an experience on LSD or mushrooms might be like, you know, because you have a little bit of recognition that, you know, your brain is capable of that. Right. Yeah, I have, I have a, I find, so my primary experience of the world is, is weird, basically, that every, everything is weird. And so it's a little, I, I will say it uh, over and over again, and, and it turns out it doesn't actually mean anything when it, just everything is weird. But <laughs> one of, one of the ways in which the world is weird and the human form is an incredibly strange experience to run is that, is, is I have very vivid dreams and I have every night Every time, every sleep period, I have multiple different dreams, and I wake up from them, and they're often vivid and self-consistent to a level where break crashing back into what appears to be re reality is kind of un—it's kind of uncomfortable. Uh, like every every day, or twice a day or so, I have the experience of going from one life to another life, and that this. This this one, the one that I'm currently speaking to you from, appears to be more self consistent than those others mm -hmm. at this exact moment. But in the moment of being in those other worlds, they appear to be self consistent at the time, and it's very disconcerting that my brain and my my mind can usually not tell. Um, I, I spend a lot of time in my like kind of from. 18 to 25, uh, think working on lucid dreaming techniques and stuff. And they, I found them actually quite effective, like, uh, in terms I mean, well, quite effective, uh, spending a bunch of time intending to, to, to become a lucid dreamer and practicing the different techniques. Um, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, look at your hands or, or, you know, look at whatever. So learn different things that you try to do to trigger a, a cognitive, uh, result, the cognitive output, whatever, when you, when you are dreaming, I found to be effective and a lot of people do. And so uh, good luck with that. That can, it can take a while, but, um, many people have success with it. Listeners, um, may be interested to learn that we originally scheduled this, uh, interview in the other world, but, uh, you guys <laughs> didn't show up. So we had to, had to come over to this side, um, but, uh, earth on the top. And of I am, uh, I'm not going to remember any of this. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Earth, as you were experimenting with those, uh, you know, lucid dreaming techniques, were you using any of the substances listed on your very own arrowid.org? Like, I, I guess I remember reading about, um, is it uh, kava that's known for that? Kava kava or um, valerian root, I guess. And what were some of the other ones? Yeah. So in onirogens is, is, you know, kind of a term that's sometimes used for, for the kind of dream drugs. Um, 
Kelly is that a Chichi? Yeah, there was one of the. If you I, say so. <laughs> I, I used I used uh, I tried a bunch of different sort of supplements and teas and things like that, but my my experience of them was that they were subtle enough that I felt as if the in, the intention. There's a way in which I believe that 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 um that uh, we go from idea space or or you know kind of random thinking about what we're going to do and who we are in the world that taking a step taking a physical action towards with with the you, you create the intention to do something or have something happen and then you actually take a step towards it right T- that i think that that part of it of the taking the step towards it is more important often than what it is that step is and my experience was that it didn't actually matter which random placebo onirogen i tried um taking an onirogen you know or whatever but vitamin b6 is an example um uh i used a bunch of b6 to try to trigger lucid dreaming and it triggered dreaming and but i think it was just taking anything is because it was part of a process of 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 not just intending something, but taking a step towards realizing that intention. Yeah, it's like a physical expression of your intention. Right. Right. <clears throat> but we have one of our one of um, one of Arrowhead's board members is a uh, she she runs these uh, she calls in oh, neuronauticums whatever they're sort of uh, dream together events um, where you know remotely you, around the world you can you can join mm-hmm. in and, and go physically to hang out with the weirdos. I'm sorry, nice friendly smart people. <laughs> Um, who, uh, who uh, will are taking taking some kind of uh, you know onirogen you know some dream drug? Uh, or not always taking. Sometimes it's it's like a, a dream pillow. So you have a herbal pillow nearby. So say you have smell from a from a, a herb. We're very fond of those. Actually, that's a that's a really uh, a a slightly smelly pillow. A little bit of um of a. Well, mugwort and uh, what is our current dream pillow? Um, and, uh, uh, lavender. lavender. Mugwort and lavender. <laughs> Lights, a very light smell. It, you know, uh, it's lovely. It's lovely. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> anyway, so you, with the neuronauticums, they you can then you can join in uh, just by intending to dream that same evening when they're when they're dreaming. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, it's a curious thing. Yeah, that's wild. Really interesting. Um, so you, as you, as you mentioned, you guys have been at this for, uh, for 20 years now and it's on the, uh, sort of, uh, you know, heels of this New Yorker, uh, profile, which, uh, is pretty awesome. Um, they, they sent a reporter to your, to your house. Well, well that was pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was, um, Emily, weird. It was weird. It, it was weird. Um, the author, Emily came and, um, spent three days sitting in our living room behind our backs where we sit at our desk. Um, and, uh, she was here for like 10 hours a day for three days in a row. Wow. Uh, wow. Which is, really which is definitely strange. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We, 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 we were, we were aware of that it was going to be weird and we, we kind of had prepared for that. And, uh, our, the current, our current, uh, Airwood HQ, as we call it, um, is, uh, mostly, you know, we have we have kind of an office separate, but m- most of the time we spend we spend in front of a a wall of monitors that you know kind of looks like the control ship for the Star Trek Enter- Enterprise, except with way more monitors. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so it isn't really set up for guests exactly. <laughs> as long as everyone likes to face the same wall of monitors, <laughs> it was difficult to figure out what was reasonable to talk about and how to, I mean, like, you know, we, 
we work in a world where a lot of what we deal with is privacy in, if issues, you know, trying to create a, a, a place where people can can publish information and, and tell us their personal stories or their incidents and things without ex having to expose their identity. You know, we're sort of a firewall in some ways. And so it was kind of curious because if you're sitting behind me for a very long time while I'm supposed to be working, uh, that firewall is... is um, Anyway, we had to have lawyer, lawyers work on agreements <laughs> wow. before she was allowed to come in. <laughs> yeah, I wonder like what portion of you, you know, what percentage do you think, you know, this is all like a, a big front or something like this person was, you know, sent here under this auspice of uh, writing this article. But, uh, you know, so <laughs> she meanwhile is like, you know, has a device that connects to your Wi-Fi and, and tries to download everything from your uh, server yeah, or yeah. something. <laughs> I had I had that thought. I didn't I actually didn't think that she was sent sent by anyone, but I, I had the concerns that I definitely wanted to lock down all of, you know, the, by Mac address, all of the, all of the possible Wi-Fi things. But if she were, she, she was, very, she was very pleasant. She, she was, was very she, nice. She was very friendly. She was very nice. We, we liked her quite a lot. Cool. Well, that's, that's what, the perfect what, cover though, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your reaction to the article itself after you read it? What, what did you think? It's really, really hard to read an article like that and have sure. any idea any idea how it comes across to other people because i mean i know who i am and and yet uh, what what that those 5000 words how those come across without any other knowledge of me is a is a is a really strange it, it's weird we 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 definitely <laughs> have like we're we're we just sort of we're way too far inside the mirrored bubble to be able to see outside of it and so we spent a it was a lot of effort this 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 that article um it was not it was not just a person coming to interview us for three days it was um it was an eight month process of of in negotiations and, wow, interesting. Um, and and fact checking and stuff like that that ended up being a lot of time for us and our colleagues and friends who were interviewed and then not quoted and so there was a it so the, Emily Emily put a lot of work into the article and talked to a lot of people who didn't end up being in the final article and and it, it's clear that that part of the New Yorker process, which is interesting to learn about as we went along, is that there were there's 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 the writer and then there's the whole editing team because she's an independent writer she doesn't work for the New Yorker exclusively um, okay. and then there's fact checkers in between and we're getting phone calls from fact checkers and editors are changing texts and Emily's still writing and it's a you know it was a very Involved, involved, and very involved. Process. So when when it came out, you know, we decided that we were not going to tell everyone what we thought of it um, because, uh, because <laughs> we it, won't it, tell anybody. Don't worry. Well, <laughs> well, because we wanted everyone to have their own experience, as we as we do with with most things. Um, we uh, and so we spent the last couple of weeks since the article came out, just sort of asking people what they thought of it and having and then listening to that and most of the feedback has been has been very positive about it and so i mean what do you guys think of the article i thought it was really cool to to kind of get a little bit of a glimpse behind the scenes um yeah. and is there anything that you that you guys might uh you know want to sort of clarify from the article or or yes you know? okay yeah, that's, 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 <laughs> yeah. i don't know that i don't know that we can uh, yeah. Think of things in those terms. Exactly. We have we are working on a response a response piece, but we're sort of waiting. We're not trying to jump on that, and it, there isn't anything terrible. No, it was, um, it was a good article. I think it I think it helped describe uh, what a lot of people their response has been, and I think that it is it is true. And what's a little bit difficult for us to see from inside our mirror bubble is that there are a lot of people in the world who don't know about Arrowhead, and it, as an introduction to Arrowhead in a major publication, it was a not un, unscary, um, uh, positive, uh, uh, detailed look 
um, without without a lot of hyperbole to to um, scare people away from. Gently weird. Gently weird, right? <laughs> well, speaking personally, I really enjoyed the article, and I've I've been reading. You know, I've been I first went to Arrowhead in 1998, and so tell, for tell having the story, such... Brad. Tell the story, please. <laughs> I want to hear the so, story. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Um, well, the context was I'd gotten to a little bit of uh, trouble with the law. And fortunately for myself, I was 17 at the time. It was very close to my 18th birthday. But I had the opportunity to do a program. This was in Florida. Uh, and I, I did a pretrial intervention program. And part of the program was I needed to write a paper, uh, a research paper, based on the substances I was caught with, which were ecstasy and pot. And, you know, I, with the Internet as my resource, I didn't have a lot to go on. But then I found Arrowhead and there was all this great information. And I think it might have – I think perhaps the program's idea for having a research paper be part of it was, you know, if the youth learn about the, the scourge of these substances and they really get the facts, then they'll be smart enough not to take them. But I found for me, the more I learned about it and the more information I got, the more it, it sort of de-vilified them. You know, they, they actually, I got a lot of positive information. And there wasn't a slant. You know, they didn't want me to, to denigrate it. You know, they just wanted me to turn in a research paper. And so that was, uh, yeah, that was how I first discovered Arrowhead. Wow. <laughs> Well, it's one of the, one of the things that you know that one of the negative blowback, and I I'd still want to hear more about your. I want to hear more about your response to the article, but the um, one of the problems that you know our society is facing is is the fact that it's been intentionally lying about the, how dangerous cannabis is for a hundred years, and so there's a blowback problem of well, what do we do about the fact that we've been saying it's super dangerous to everybody that we could possibly get to listen to us for as long as anyone can remember and yet it turns out it's actually really 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 safe it makes alcohol look like a you know certain death right you know in comparison <laughs> and and so it's definitely it's a it's a weird problem that that you know as a society as a kind of a educational system we've been lying for a really long time and so the cannabis is the great example of oh my god this that was it might cure cancer right <laughs> it might you know <laughs> <laughs> this is, you, you this can't. Is... You can drown rats in it, but you can't. You can't actually <laughs> die. You know. This is one I, I've brought up uh, time and time again because I and I always say that I, I think that the drug education about marijuana was the gateway drug itself. Right. In 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 the sense that once you discovered marijuana, then you knew that the rest of it, or at least you suspected that the rest of it was also false. Yep. Uh, and that led you to then go try those things. But yep. um, this is uh, – in our list of uh, questions when we were kind of getting the show together, that's kind of one of the things I wanted to ask uh, you guys was that our our drug education now is so based on, on abstinence and fear. And while something like uh, Arrowhead is fantastic for an adult community – what do you think could be a possible way to to reshape drug education, especially as it as it pertains to young young people and teenagers? So the first thing that I would say about that is that it is our hope, and and certainly we have some knowledge that this happens. Um, that as the generations of people, I mean, so I don't know how old all of you are, but but. <clears throat> 
t educators who are teaching the young kids now are people who have had access to better information than the previous generation of teachers did. And I think that as a default, that will help make drug education more realistic. Less stupid. Less stupid. <laughs> but, but A little bit weirder. A little bit weirder, less stupid. It's <laughs> um, probably true, a little bit weirder. Uh, but that obviously that effect can be negated by policies that require, you know, whether whether that's whether that's high level policies in the country or whether that's you know individual school districts policies against providing actual information and instead having abstinence only based. I mean, we 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 think that one of the direct effects of of having, I mean, like the intended effect from the mid nineties on and the direct effect, I think of having, you know, Arrowwood and Wikipedia and all of these other sources where they, there's a, it isn't the, the, the texts of the, of the information about drugs are not being decided on by elected policy people. Right. Um, uh, has had the effect of reining back in the most ridiculous claims that have been made by the, you know, the kind of, let's, I'm going to, I'm going to slander them right now, but NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse and, and, um, you know, the, uh, Partnership for a Drug-Free America, which is now something else. Um, Drugfree.org. Um, but a lot of those groups kind of can't say as terribly wrong things as they used to get away with because, you know, one, because the, the general population knows a little bit better because they can just go to, they can type the thing into Google and their top hit will be a Wikipedia article that they've extracted, you know, to tell them something that's at least yeah. pretty good. Um, so I, I mean that we're, there's definitely a lot of evolution that needs to happen in terms of how our society educates young people about, about all these topics. But I think that we're, that we're kind of a long way away from that, from, from anything that's actually useful because, or really good, let's say not, not useful, good, because I think that adults don't really know how to deal with, you know, there aren't, there, it's not like we've, we know how humans should relate to the fact that essentially everyone now is exposed to and has access to a wide variety of mind altering technologies and chemicals and things like that from caffeine to kind of the simplest, you know, everyone needs to sit in a cubicle and, and face their computer kind of way to, um, to cannabis, which is, you know, essentially legal in the United States. Now I, I that's a joke I make. It's, I mean, it's, it's getting there. It's getting there. Um, and, uh, you know, all the way through to, um, psychedelics and then on through that past into, into computer games, you know, and, uh, really the not very far away world of, of having, um, direct stimulation, uh, of, electroceuticals, you know, do you guys know the term electroceuticals? No, no, no. it's a term that is kind of a new term, but it's basically, in, so you probably know like transcranial magnetic stimulation. There's TMS, which is the mm -hmm. magnets, the Persinger helmets. Mm -hmm. um, they, it doesn't really work very well. It kind of seems like it, it's, it's kind of lame. Um, but then there's the direct electrical stimulation stuff where you, you run electrical current of various types, you know, through your brain. Um, uh, again, sort of, it's kind of a little bit of stone knife stuff going on there. 
But electroceuticals are a more targeted way to directly stimulate the nervous system with mostly with electrical signals, although that's there's other options um, where you are trying to the reason for electroceutical is you're trying to mimic some kind of a drug effect or have there's a, a mainstream uh, a route for de you know, for development of this in trying to actually replace certain types of drugs, you know, like just imagine heart medications or, or blood pressure medications. Right, right. So the, the, if you, I don't know if you want a, a short description of, of how these work or. Yeah, that, that, that okay, sounds good. very interesting. So very, very simply that, you know, we're at a, we're in, we don't really know how the, the brain and nervous system communicates and what the language is that it uses to talk to the rest of the body. We kind of, it's, we're, we're so far, far away from understanding how any of that works in a operational way. However, what has been discovered is that you can take a recording device. Now imagine a fair, a fair rule or so a, a round collar. circle, a little, little collar you can put around a, a nerve. Um, and then just record all of the noise that goes through that nerve and also record whatever effect is going on. So for instance, you record, um, you record what's going on on your vagus nerve in your neck in, or in a rat's neck. Um, probably don't do this yourself. Um, but, uh, record what's going through a rat's neck's vagus nerve and, and what its body temperature is and what its heart rate is. And then later take another rat, um, uh, so let, let me uh, actually. So give give the rat give that same rat a, a that you're recording on a drug like a blood pressure medication and drop and drop its heart rate and blood pressure. Now take another rat that you have the same ferrule same type of ferrule and it's uh, around its vagus nerve and you play back the signal from the first rat onto their onto their vagus nerve. They, it's heart its heart rate and blood pressure will drop. And they've they have shown this that they are able to now. There's a there's a bunch of research where they're able to directly affect the like uh, uh, insulin levels. Um, where there's a real hope that in the not too distant future, one might be able to use some kind of external device that you'd hold to your neck or something like that um, that would then actually replace the use of it's kind of a strange fooling of the body to make it think that it's received the signals to increase insulin production or decrease insulin production and then get it to actually react to that it's a it's a very very interesting wow. stuff but so there's the, there's the real uh, fairly near term and who knows whether that's two or 20 years um where uh these sorts of things will be available we'll have Psycho, direct psychoactive effects, measurable measurable effects on, on people's mood and, and, and... I'm unaware of any testing so, so far, but it seems like it's not very far away before somebody trips on LSD and records the signal of, or tri gives a rat LSD and records, rat, rats, records, of course. Rats, rats. <coughs> records the signals <laughs> and plays them back to another rat and sees whether or not it rats. experiences the effects. But this is this is research that's fairly well funded. It was actually the 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 main story on the was it April issue of twenty fifth April twenty fifteen issue of or Mario's March of Scientific American covered this a little bit. Not at the not this. It wasn't targeted at at psychedelic drug geeks or entheogen people, but um, the uh, the research is going is is kind of uh, getting really big right now. There's a bunch of money being dumped into it. There are there are applications that the Pentagon that the uh, thinks are possibly interesting in terms of having uh, non drug ways of supporting soldiers' health and you know like. It, um, so there's a re there's there are mil military applications to this as well. Sure. Wow. Well, that, that is both weird and cool. And <laughs> as you say that, you know, the research it's it's so exciting. And going back to what we were talking about before, in terms of 
you know, how do we educate the youth or the next generation, however you want to say it, uh, one thing that makes me optimistic is that there is research being done now for the first time since the 50s, you know, yep. as in the UK and also in the US and in other places in the world. It's we're finally now starting to be able to collect information. So there's a whole new generation of teachers who are teaching, uh, but also there's going to be a whole another generation of information available so that we actually can make informed decisions about whether it's policy or how to talk to our kids about it or whatever it may be. We don't have to simply take what's given to us. And I did want, before we got too far longer, I wanted to just close the loop on uh, my thoughts on the article because yeah. it's, it's pretty brief, you know, just so given my first experience back in the 90s and then, you know, since then it's been a great resource of information. It's such a huge volume of information that one of the, the biggest thing I took from the article was how personal it was and how it was about the two of you. And I, it just blew my mind that two people, you know, could create something that's so um, massive now. And I really love the stat that I think it was the Reddit survey of the, the nonprofits where yeah. uh, Arrowhead came in fourth, you know, yep. above NPR. And that's, that's just so cool to me, you know, that, that the two of you have been able to do this and, you know, can't, I can't thank you enough. So for me, that, that's what I got from the article. I really enjoyed the, the, the kind of the insight into the, the people, you know, you, you people. <laughs> well, that, yeah. So, just one one required aside is that is that most you know we have a lot of volunteers and that represents the work of a lot of people. Um, yeah. You know, we are certainly at the hub in the terms of the coordination and the and the review, but um, it's it's a lot of a lot of people put a lot of time into this. <laughs> well, and, and I, maybe that's a good place to. Um, we've had for a long time this visualization we've described, which is that our jobs. The two of us and our, our very small crew, few people, um, our jobs are to stand at the base of the waterfall of information that is pouring, pouring down <laughs> with a little tin cup trying to catch the most important pieces as they go by. Wow. Wow. Well, it's probably a good time to, to you know, for to thank. I, I, I had this on the list of uh, things I wanted to mention. Um, you know, some names popped up and just like, you know, researching uh, just kind of delving back into Arrowhead, you know, um, after reading this article and uh, exploring the site a little bit more, um, you know, I was encountering these names I remember from like, you know, 10 years ago when I was involved a little bit with doing a little bit of triage on the Tripper um, oh, cool. Experience Vaults. And uh, so like, uh, for example, Spoon, I remember reading yeah. Uh, yeah. a long time ago and exchanging a few emails and whatnot. And There is no Spoon. <laughs> exactly. I think that's the Spoon's bio on the site, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. She's, she's still in charge of the experience reports and wrangling all of the people to help review and triage those so that's a that's a huge that's a huge job she takes on that's amazing since, since you you participated in it you know a little bit of you know our system for experience reports is they get submitted and and then there's a the triage team we try to have at least two readers look at it before any of the reviewers see them you know so they, they people people read them the triagers read them and grade them and then the ones that people that you know we have campaigns and things like that where we're trying to be like, oh, we're looking for opioid addiction reports right now or whatever to try and fill that out area out. Um, but then people <clears throat> essentially grade them or vote on them. And then the ones that get the best grades are, are much more likely to get than, you know, someone, someone who's been doing, reading them longer in order to edit them for publication. And the main editing that happens is just, is really to try to make sure that there aren't outlandishly wrong things that are said um, and to, you know, 
we mostly there's very light editing that goes on. We add we add, add warnings. We add we we code them for how much you know how much of the drug the person took at a given time. You know, there's a little what we call a do, do, dose charts dose charts at the top um, to try to get, provide a kind of an overview site of what what is the person did because sometimes it gets kind of kind of difficult to follow what it, how what drug each person what per, what drug at what time and how much they took. What percentage would you say like? doesn't actually make it to publication? Is there a lot that's filtered out? Well, so it, let's we can talk about that for experience reports most specifically because we actually have numbers for that. Um, at this point in time, we've had 110,000 experience reports submitted. Wow. wow. Uh, we've published something, I don't have the numbers in front of me, 20, 24,000 of those. Um, I believe that it's something like a third of reports or a quarter of reports maybe that get pretty low grades when rated so that so that they are unlikely to ever make it to publication, although they might stay in the database for some future research purpose or something. Um, but but that that leaves us 50,000 that are that are, um, you know, needing to be reviewed <laughs> still. <laughs> wow. So or or haven't made it to the top of the list, because as as you know, as he was describing the process moves through based on the gradings of the initial triage volunteer readers. And so high call, higher quality and higher quality reports and reports that contain information that seems more useful, make it to review more quickly. Right. We have 20, we have 20,000 reports currently that no 19,972 19, that have never been read. Um, wow. uh, uh, so, you know, we have a, we have a con we're constantly adding new people, but people burn out pretty fast. I mean, the, the kind of the most common um, number it's somewhere in the order of a hundred or so reports. People start to be like, "Oh, this is actually just work. <laughs> this, is <laughs> <laughs> this isn't fun anymore." Because it's it's a, it's hard. You're put in the position of, of of needing to grade someone else's experience, and, you know, in some fashion. It, it's it's a little bit of a swaggy game to play. Unless you unless you really like reading not terribly compellingly written reports by most people, where you know one in one in ten reports is actually quite good, right? But that's a lot of report, a lot of people who are not paid professional authors yeah. writing for, for those people out there who read experience reports and they're like, oh, they're good. Uh, remember, those are the ones that have made it through the review process, been graded towards the top and been published based on that. Just imagine what the very, very poor bottom end of those are like. It's, it's a, you, if you if you did that, that if you, how long how, do you know how many you did? Oh, wow. I, you know, it was probably just a handful at that point. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I had found out earlier about, you know, the, like the possibility of, of being a volunteer um, reading those because I, speaking of work, I, I did I read Experience Vaults all day long at, at, at a corporate job I had, as I mentioned yeah. in the last episode. And it, it really, for me, it was a good substitute for, for work. Um, you know, it was one of these jobs where you didn't have... You're, you're actually getting paid for it. I was getting paid for it, exactly. <laughs> you know, that, I wish I'd find, okay, so, find out. So I, I've heard I've heard a UI suggestion, which is on the reports themselves to have a clear, a much clearer advertisement for saying, "Hey, are you reading a lot of these? You should, you should join the crew." And up, oh, up, that's down a great idea. Them. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a, yeah. you have a shitty corporate job? Erwood <laughs> <laughs> <Arrowhead> wants you. <laughs> Make use of your time and your corporate employer's yeah, money. Abuse it. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> and and as as time went on, after you know, I, I think it was probably about a year. Of of like reading Arrowhead about uh, 30 hours per week. Um, 
eventually I got the site blocked from our, uh, you know, in our corporate firewall. And, uh, so, <laughs> well done, sir. Yeah. So I, I quit uh, shortly thereafter. But um, the, the, um, the, you know, the experience vaults that this excellent service that you guys have been providing uh, for a long time. I mean, the, speaking of this editing and, you know, sort of curation, um, it really does provide a great alternative to, you know, the other forums that uh, are sort of your contemporaries, like bluelight.org, I guess, I think that was mentioned in the article. Um, But then there's like the Lyceum, there's deoxy.org, there's any number of like forums that have just, uh, you know, just like any anything goes, like you just post them, and maybe they get voted up or something, but um, nothing like what you guys provide. Well, we, yeah, I mean, they, they, we, we, we really like forums and, you know, we we decided very early on in our project that we weren't going to run them because it's a very different, it's, it's its own, it's its own whole thing trying to manage, um, the, and moderate that type of ongoing communication. You know, one of the issues that probably is obvious, but, you know, was, was one of the reasons we decided not to get involved in the forum in direct, you know, publishing forums is, um, uh, it's a relatively man- difficult to keep people from selling drugs uh, to each other um, uh, <laughs> if, if you have that kind of a sy- system. And so there's just kind of this constant, you're kind of constantly, those people are constantly working with the fact that the people will use their systems for things for, that the law enforcement would be interested in. And so uh, one of our kind of concepts as far as like how to make something that can that can be stable for a very long time, we thought was to try to not create systems that would be of interest for law enforcement. Um, you know, I mean, people write we, their- We publish pretty much everything that we get. We don't, we don't have a large hidden backside database of, of things that law enforcement would love to get a, would love to get a warrant to, to get access to. So yeah, we, there was, there was a forum that we were part of, whatever, um, in the mid nineties that, that did, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't very careful about some of the discussions of vendors and it was fairly easy for people to hint that they might know where to get things. And then there were the back channel, you know, kind of private messaging going on where then, you know, law enforcement stepped in and, um, it became a, Anyway, a problematic comes very problematic very quickly. Then you're, those people were running a forum that law enforcement was, you know, int- was uh, using to bust people, um, and so that wasn't very fun. Well, it's a, it's a really uh, simple policy that Fire brings up. Like, just not, just don't keep the stuff. Like, you know, publish what you get, and it's just very transparent. Um, and a lot of tech companies would do well to uh, to have a similar policy. You know, they, they become huge targets of. Um, you know, uh, of hackers when they store all this stuff uh, behind the scenes and they, they track all kinds of things that people don't even know they're tracking. Um, it's just way better to not keep the stuff in the first place. Yep, <clears throat> I agree. Browsing the site, um, of course, I went to the uh, Entheogens page um, uh, on, the, on the site, naturally, yep. and I realized it, it doesn't list LSD. Is that a sort of policy decision? What do you guys, how do you guys feel about that? Oh, we'll go check. We'll go check. <laughs> I don't that's not a policy decision no no that's an error <laughs> wow okay live uh live updates here this yeah no we can we can we can fix that while yeah. we talk here that's a, oh. really, hey, really... I, can, I totally know where you guys can get some of that <laughs> oh <laughs> I would like I would like 25 pounds <laughs> right you and Timothy Leary apparently <laughs> <laughs> 
No, that's not. That is not a policy decision. That I would guess that that page has not had anybody add or subtract anything from. Here, that add something to it. Term. I'll do live live update. I will. Ooh, I'm, I'm, re- I'm refreshing. I'm oh. refreshing. So we're gonna. So I'm. Gonna, It'll take me a little I'm, longer than because, that. So, <laughs> <laughs> we use a version control system, man. <laughs> so I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let her let her do that for a moment while I while I respond to something in the article, uh, the New Yorker article that I yeah. I feel like. Probably the thing that I felt most misrepresented on, and it's a fairly fairly minor point that probably no one else will care about, but Emily wrote something about how we want to be seen as the straights among the weirdos and the weirdos among the straights. And what is in fact true is that it we we learned we figured out sometime in the mid '90s that we are in fact the weirdos among the straights and the straights among the weirdos. That we were that in high school, we were that in college, we were that when we went to corporate jobs. And I mean, like the the example that I give that was like so it kind of crystallized it was we were living in a living in a Victorian, ugly Victorian, not a nice Victorian in Minneapolis, and while we were working for um, you know whatever. Normal kind of a normal corporation, tech corporation, and where we were living, we were sharing a flat with with a couple of younger guys, whatever, sort of in their early twenties. And um, for everyone in this building, we were the super weird straight people, the super normal straight people. We had a car that we owned, we had insurance on our car, we we wore we wore clothing, we <laughs> went to we went to work every day, every day of the week, we went to work. And we came home from work about the same time. You know, we worked about 10 hours a day and, and <clears throat> we had money, you know, like we had money, like we had made $10 an hour, you know, and, uh, and the, all these people were kind of cannabis. It was not, I don't want to exaggerate too much, but it was kind of a slackerville, right? You know, the, the people, you know, one of the guys went to jail for, uh, well, I'm sorry, not, didn't go to jail, got beat up by the cops for tagging their car with his marker while they were watching, you know, um, <laughs> And, and so at home, they were like, oh, they're the normal people. And I go to work every day, and every day people called me the hippie at work. I'm like the hippie. I'm the crazy, crazy hippie guy. Ooh, I make the hippie joke, whatever thing. So, like, <clears throat> it it wasn't that we try to be that. It, it is, in fact, the case. It's just, it's just that's who we are. And I think I suspect that's actually kind of pretty normal for drug geek types of sort of the – self-informed, educated, smart people, you know, there's a way in which, you know, we kind of are on the edge of certain, of certain normal people and, and on the edge of, of the, you know, the kind of the, the subculture. You sound pretty, pretty well adjusted to me. I think that's, you know, that's a very, uh, that's because you're a weirdo. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. (laughs) It takes one to know one, you know, I can empathize with that because to this day, Kevin still calls me a hippie because of the length of my hair. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Right. And now, now LSD is on your entheogens page. Oh, sweet. I'll refresh. (laughs) Awesome. Oh, that's an honor. So should, uh, should listeners, um, call you guys up anytime they want anything changed on the site or how does that work? <laughs> that's right. Normally? That's right. Our phone phone number, please publish that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we love, we love phone interruptions. That's well, but favorite. we do in fact love corrections. corrections. Uh, so, um, we, we corrections at arrow.org or, or there's a web form on the site, but yes, anytime you, you feel like there should be something correct, you let us know. Oh, wow. Excellent. Excellent. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I see it on there now. That's awesome. Origin Switzerland exclamation point. <laughs> I, love that. I was making it up on the fly during an interview. I yeah. Like, right. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So I think we'll leave it there for, for part one and uh, stay tuned for more from earth and fire Arrowhead in part two of this interview. And in the meantime, we would like to invite listeners to 
find a way to give something back to Airwood. They've been at this for 20 years, and we really think that they are deserving of your contributions, whether you donate money uh, and you know choose one of their awesome membership gifts, uh, become a member. You can you can you know pledge a certain amount uh, per year or per month. Um, you can receive the really beautifully designed Arrowhead Extracts newsletter uh, as a member of Arrowhead. Um, you can even do things like donate your books, uh, whether used or new, um, to be uh, added to the Arrowhead uh, library or even passed along as a membership gift to another uh, contributor to Arrowhead. You can volunteer to triage experience reports or other projects they have listed on the page. So check out Arrowhead at Arrowhead.org. And you can also find a link to all these different ways to contribute in our show notes at entheogenshow.com.